0: Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J.
1: Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send in the Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decalator Cohen and DePrisco,
0: Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts, Mark and A.J., Joining us now is a man who had a 17-year career in Major League Baseball. Throughout the 1980s and early 1990s, he was one of the most feared sluggers in the sport. Known for his mammoth home runs, his intimidating presence in the batter's box, he helped lead the New York Mets to World Series championship in 1986, the New York Yankees to three World Series championships in 96, 98, and 99. He was one of the most popular players during his career, was voted to the All-Star Game eight straight times from 1984 to 1991. His career was not without downsides, as he has suspended three times Major League Baseball for substance abuse, leading to many narratives about his massive potential going unfulfilled. His latest book, Don't Give Up On Me, tells of his childhood abuse, anxiety, drug, and alcohol addiction, and offers hope and a path to healing. It is a thrill to welcome the man who hit 293 home runs while wearing a New York uniform, both that of the Yankees <laughs> and Mets. The one, the only, Darryl Strawberry to WLIE Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Darryl.
1: Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: It's our pleasure. Before we get into the book, let's talk a little bit about your career. You grew up in Los Angeles where you played high school baseball for the Crenshaw High School Cougars along with Chris Brown. But your childhood, which is pretty much at the root of the book, The Addiction, was not a happy one at all as your home was not a safe haven for you and your brothers. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that?
1: Well, yeah, of course. My father was an alcoholic and, you know, he kind of beat me and my brother Ronnie and just said we're never mounting nothing. And When I was 13 years old, he came home for the last time in one of his drunken rage and pulled out a shotgun and said he was going to kill the whole family. And, and me and my brothers went into action. My brother Ronnie grabbed the butcher knife. I grabbed the frying pan. And my brother Mike grabbed the bat. And we just kind of had told him, to get out here and leave us alone. But my mom rushed us out of the house. And, you know, most people just saw me play baseball, there, but they don't know the brokenness was already there and the pain that I was in, which was my pain would eventually lead me to my greatness, which my greatness would lead me to my destructive behavior in my life.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because despite your mother's best in efforts to mend and heal, the damage is already der- turn, done, and you turn to drugs and alcohol as a teenager, you're kicked out of four junior high schools. You know, it's interesting because we always talk about, you know, kids that are left on their own or kids that, you know, no one picks up on an issue. You're getting kicked out of four high schools. Uh, You know, at any point, did anyone say, look, we have an issue here. We have to intervene and help him out.
1: Well, my mother, my mother did. She tried to help us the best that she could. I mean, raising five kids by herself, and and she realized that her kids were scarred, you know, and they were really um, hurting, and she just didn't know where to turn. Um, Of course, um. Coaches started coming into my life when I started playing Little League and stuff and tried to help me and guide me. But, uh, yeah, I was kicked out of four junior high schools. I was already troubled. I was smoking marijuana. I was drinking Coke 45 at the age of 14, 15 years old. Um, of course, most kids get on the marijuana maintenance and don't, don't think that is ever going to affect them. because Everybody thinks, oh, marijuana won't affect you. But eventually marijuana stopped working, and it leads you to everything else. So um, I had trouble, and the uniform just covered up the scars um, because it allowed me to just be in that place where I can just feel good about myself playing baseball. So I uh, wasn't a bad person. You know, just had a lot of things that happened at such a young age, an early young age. And I think most people don't realize that a young man needs his father. He needs a man that's like to uh, hug him, coach him and let him know that he's all right. And um, the decisions you make up. Those are those are very important things, and I missed a lot of that. My father never gave me a hug. My father never saw me play literally. He didn't show up until I was in high school, and he heard about me in high school uh, through the papers, and he called my brother, and he said, I started asking him questions about, is your brother really that good? And he said, yeah, he's pretty good. And I never had a relationship with him. You know, he would come to the game in high school and stand up on the hill and watch me from the hill and really never came down to say anything, just watching me from a distance.
0: You know, it's interesting because that's brought out in the book and some of the reasons why addiction happens. Um, but it's interesting because somehow, despite the drugs and alcohol, you excel at baseball and you're part of the 1979 Crenshaw High School baseball team, which is generally regarded as one of the best ever high school teams. Most of the team was drafted into professional baseball. You and Chris Brown would reunite as teammates on a National League All Star roster. The team's catcher, Carl Jones, had maybe, you know, was assumed to have maybe the best ability on that team, yet he never got a chance to prove it because of California's three strikes laws he's in Folsom prison until at least 2021 for three burglaries in the last instance he didn't take anything merely vandalized a a Crenshaw high school classroom but that was his third strike you look at where your life is now what you've accomplished and what you're doing now and what you've overcome and how you're helping people heal have you ever taken a step back and think what would have happened if your life went in the direction of Carl's instead
1: of course I do. I mean, I always think of, you know, broken comes from broken families, and you know, most inner city kids come from broken situations. Uh, we don't come from suburban homes. We don't have a luxury lifestyle, and everything's comfortable for us. And We're not privileged, um, and we have to fight through. I always think about a, a lot of guys that I played with what what happened to their life, um, and they were all great players. I mean, that's '79, '19. We lost in the championship to Granada Hills, John Elway. I'm at Dodger Stadium and we were the best team in Southern California. Uh, scouts said that we were the best high school team that you ever saw, you know, because Chris Brown was our third baseman. Carl Jones was uh, the catcher. I was outfielder, and we had plenty more other players, the McNeely brothers and Cordy Diller. So you always wonder, you know, what could happen to young people like that who uh, are in high school and, and, re- and really challenged, you know, that have a stability at home, which – I didn't. Nicole probably didn't have in his home. And and he was such a great guy, great catcher, and unbelievable player. And Chris Brown was the best player on our team in high school. And he probably was the best player in in the city. Um, But, you know, it was just a struggle for all of us, you know, to uh, make waves in life and find out who we are. We tried to identify ourselves as a baseball player for so long. And that sports is only going to last for so long. You can only identify yourself for so long as a. As a baseball player, and then you have to find life and find purpose of life, and you know I was able to do that, you know, through the help of others, and my wife was a big part of my life, and um, I just was fortunate to be able to get out of those circumstances because I could have easily been in those circumstances, just like Carl Jones or someone else.
0: It's pretty wild that the third baseman from that team came in to pitch in relief to win that game, and that was John Elway. It's like it's yeah. an amazing, amazing, you know, team and amazing story. You're drafted first overall by the Mets, 1980, all right? Um, your older brother, Michael, also selected in that draft, going to the Dodgers in the 31st round. But it's interesting that we're talking long before the era of social media. But I remember reading, uh, this goes back to your days in Lynchburg, um, that there might have been some issues concerning Darryl, sometimes coming late to the ballpark for practice and everything. And, you know, it, we talk about addiction, and we talk about the world we live in now, and where... Maybe a celebrity's caught because someone has a cell phone and and sees what's going on. Uh, uh, Two
2: two seconds walking out of a bar. Right.
0: Exactly. Things like that. Um, And you would think maybe that's a deterrent, but yet we see time and time again, you take a look in the case, and and I don't don't even know we should bring that up because nothing's been proved on that, but you take a look at at a case of Anthony Weiner, a a different addiction, okay, but... Lots at stake, and he continued to do what he did. People are because he played social
2: media. He wasn't a victim of social media. Well, you know that's, what I'm saying. That, that's the big well, difference. No, no. The big, but di- but the diff- he still continued to do things. What, what Social media puts everybody on a spotlight. No matter what you did. there's no second to be private. There's right, no but, privacy. That's so the, the question is, as an
0: addict, going back to Lynchburg, let's say back in the day, there were cell phones, and some of the things that you were doing, and maybe you didn't trust a teammate could end up on the Internet, that would not have been a deterrent to an addict, correct?
1: Um, no, I mean... Really, it was a lot of different problems you know, for me in Lynchburg, and I came very close to quitting baseball. Right. Uh, because I was playing there, and my manager, he, he really uh, did a great, great job with me to keep me focused, even in the midst of struggling, and, and even in the midst of being in the minors and smoking weed from time to time. Uh, I started picking up because I was playing in Lynchburg, and there was a lot of racial things being said to me every time at the home ballpark. And, and I was struggling because I really wanted to like, just go up and hammer a couple of people outside of the head with a bat. And he used to tell me, I believe my manager was Gene, DeSantis, he used to tell me, don't look up there and just keep moving. Um, and it was in my own home ballpark. So, you know, I had to experience that. And people, you know, didn't know that. And they don't ever know what a person experienced, you know, just because I was a baseball player and, and people have, were yelling at me names and saying, you're not that good and calling me out of my name. So it was, it was a very difficult time. And I just went AWOL and just said, forget it, I'm quitting. Uh, I'm not going to play anymore. And I stayed home and, and I just started smoking weed with one of my teammates and friends and, and said, I just don't want to play anymore. And, and I remember the Mets uh, immediately sent Lloyd McClendon, because Lloyd McClendon was uh, supposed to be my roommate when, when I was going down to Litchburg, because he was supposed to go there, but he broke his, he got, broke his hand in uh, spring training and he had to stay and extend the extended spring. So he, I missed him being as a roommate. So I started doing some of the wrong habits and picking up some of the wrong things because I was really frustrated inside about. Uh, what was being said at me as a a young kid, you know, 19 years old. What do you expect? You know, what do you expect me to do? Uh, But I I just really credit my manager, Gene. I really credit him um, in the way he handled that situation for me.
0: Despite whatever's going on off the field, on the field, your performance is it lives up to the hype. You progress up the Mets minor league system, reach the major leagues in 1983 as a 21-year-old, crushing 26 home runs, most of that, most of them of the mammoth proportion. I, I remember those moonshots well. 74 runs batted in, uh, hit 257 You named National League Rookie of the Year. Also, the foundation of that '86 team starts to take place. You're part of maybe. Uh, The most memorable games in Mets history. Let's face it, that period and that team made for lots of great moments. Um, Before we talk in depth about your book, I just wanted to go over my top five and get your recollections of them. Uh, Number five, July 4th, 1985, Mets Braves Marathon. I remember going out during the rain delay, coming home, and that game still being on and, and not being able to turn it off. What do you remember most about that game?
1: I just remember it was a long night. I just remember um, we didn't have enough players, and we just, you know, going back and forth with players and Carter and and I believe Roscoe, and just so many different things happened. I mean, I got kicked out at, I think, close around 2 o'clock in the morning on (laughs) Park called a strike. And he was like, I was like, that's not a strike. And then I started arguing with him, and he was like, that's a strike at this time in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) So I I just remember that. I remember our team. The the character of our team going through that game, it it was incredible, you know, just to stay focused and and go ahead and win that ball game. You know, that's just the kind of team we had that year. Just never quit. That was just one of those moments where uh, it was just a long night for us. It kept going back and forth, and we just, you know, finally eventually pulled it off.
0: Another amazing game, also in July, but of the following year, July twenty second, 1986. Uh, pretty much a game for me that defined that team. Eric Davis pinched running for Pete Rose after stealing second. Steals third base as well in the 10th inning. Bumps into Ray Knight, touching off a bench-clearing brawl, a game in which the Mets would eventually win on Howard Johnson's three-run homer in the 14th. The game is also kind of pointed to... As the the final straw as to why George Forster was released uh, sixteen days later, he would be released. Uh, also, a little bit of controversy surrounding that as well. He would only start three more games as a Met after staying in the dugout while the bench is cleared. What do you remember about that game, that brawl, and the George Forster controversy?
1: Well, I, I just remember that we were, you know, we were bad boys. We were tough. <laughs> you
0: know,
1: Ray, Ray Knight was tough and. You know, Eric's my best friend. We grew up right. together. We played. We played on the same team growing up together. And you know, and it was, it was kind of you know shocking. You know, in, in the moment of you know, Ray still being my best friend, but at the same time, you know, I represent New York, and our team comes first. You know, even over your best friend in situations like that. And um, I hated to see it be Eric, but you know, it happened, and you know, we just we had to do what we had to do uh, as a team. And I, I think you know, when you saw our team. Guys like Kevin Mitchell and some guys like, you know, different guys, tough, all the kind of guys on the team that was just we were willing to stand up and fight because we had a lot of fights that year with, with teams because everybody thought, oh, we were a little cocky. But we weren't cocky. We were confident. You know, we were confident. We had a little swag about ourselves, and we, we believed in each other, and we went into spring training, and David said this is our year, and we went out and we wanted to perform like it was our year because we came up short 84 and 85, and – Now, 86, we felt like we had all the pieces together. And with Carter there for a year, you know, and and Knight coming over and Hernandez at first, we had a pretty solid ball club with veteran players blended with a bunch of of young players and a good pitching staff. So um, it was going to be tough to beat us. It was going to be tough to beat us in the game. It's going to be tough to beat us in the fight.
0: Games, uh, for me, three and two going down the line are kind of a tie. Game six, National League Division Series against the Astros. Of course, game six, World Series. First, the NLDS. While we may never know this, you guys are trailing 3 nothing in the ninth inning against an Astro team, facing the daunting task of facing Mike Scott, a guy you guys never beat that year for possibly a winner. Well, it would be a winner-take-all. Um, that win, the, the rally you guys pull off, um, is also... Pointed to in Jeff Perlman's uh, book, touches off a wild celebration on the plane ride home. Uh, We've had many players on the show. Some say that in the book it was grossly overstated, and other players that we've had on the show say it was grossly Mm -hmm. understated. So what do you remember about that game as well as the plane ride home? Well, the
1: game was incredible. It was an incredible win for us. It was a long journey, and of course, we didn't want to have to face Scott again because he had just completely dominated us. And we just knew that we had to win. And that's what we did. Um, it was it was a whole team effort. And the thing about all of us, um, we stuck together. And that was the most important thing throughout that whole game as it was going back and forth. you know, And we just kept battling. And then, you know, the plane ride, the celebration was real. I mean, I, I don't know which guy said it was you know, overly rated, because it wasn't. It was powerful, you know. It was a powerful time of fun and, and, and drinking and, and food fights and just everything. I mean, the whole <laughs> plane was just completely trash, and, and we deserved it. You know, we deserved that fact. David Johnson said we deserve it. We, we worked hard that year, and we deserved it. We were on our way to the World Series. Out of how many years has since been since the Mets have captured that? And, you know, we were on our way, and we really deserved that, and, and we had a good time.
0: Game six World Series, maybe the single most talked about game on this program um, over the last 10 years. We've had Wally Backman, Tim Tuffle, Ray Knight, Howard Johnson, Mookie Wilson, Lenny Dykstra, Gary Carter, Ed Hearn, Ron Darling, Terry Leach, Davey Johnson from the Mets, John McNamara, Oil Cam Boyd, and Wade Boggs from the Red Sox. <laughs> taking us through that range of emotion from the beginning of the inning to the point where the ball goes through Bill Buckner's legs and you know the Mets win the Mets win in the immortal words of, of Bob Murphy take us through your take uh, of that inning and, and the emotions you felt
1: well it was great emotions in the game uh, because of the fact that we were down and we we're down to you know two outs you know and a couple times just one pitch away from from losing uh, but it's there again with that team and the character of the team, it was like, never give up. You know, we just learned that throughout the course of that season. Uh, it's just don't give up. You never know what's going to happen. And everybody blames Billy Buckner for, for the play. Yeah, he, he tried to beat Mookie to the back. But you think about the other guys that Bob Stanley didn't get nobody out, and Calvin Girardi didn't get anyone out. So you had an opportunity to get people out, but they couldn't close it. They couldn't get anyone out. And and the play came when, you know, Mookie hit the slow rolling ball, and, and Billy Buckner tried to – him to the bag, and he was a great player and a great fielder throughout his career, and it was just that one play, that one one moment, and he just missed the ball, and, and there it was. There was a miracle that just took place for us, and we had Game 7 coming, and we went into Game 7, and we were behind in Game 7, we had to come back and win that one.
0: You know, so much has been written about that 86 team and how wild they were, the, the definitive work obviously being Jeff Perlman's great book, yeah. in which the title kind of tells everything. The bad guys won a season of brawling, boozing, bimbo chasing, and championship baseball with Straw, Doc, Mookie, Nails, and the kid. And the rest of the 86 Mets, the rowdiest team ever to put on a New York uniform and maybe the best. So you had mentioned before about how you know, baseball and stardom kind of fueled your addiction. How did being in that environment with that team, that group of guys, impact your addiction? Well, I, I, it,
1: it, my addiction was going to take its role anyway because I was addicted, I had addictive personality, and it wasn't just because of that team. It was the team was incredible, and we had fun. No matter how I look back on it, we yeah, we party, we were crazy, but I, also at the same time, when we stepped on the field, we beat you behind, and mm-hmm. that was the most important thing that we. No matter how many bar fights, you are, what happened, what we got into, what headlines, you know, people are always going to say what they're going to say, but a lot of times, you know, you have a bunch of writers and stuff talk about their team that that wasn't even born at the time, so they don't really know the depth of that team and the character. You know, Carter wasn't a partier. Carter was a superman, a man of faith. that loved his family. Mookie was a great man. Most of the rest of us were a little bit wild on the wild side and a little bit crazy, but that's what made us. That's what made us so successful is being wild and crazy. I mean, we're playing in New York. You, you, you're drawing 35 40,000 a night to see this group of guys play. Uh, it was an incredible time for us. And, you know, the addiction part kicked in more because of my own personal lifestyle of drinking and drugging and getting addicted to amphetamines and all the things that I fell into. And that was because of the brokenness and the emptiness inside of myself. Uh, Guys, I was a baseball player. I put on the uniform I was a baseball player that didn 't make me a man. That just made me a baseball player putting the uniform on. i was never I was never taught by a man what a man 's supposed to look like, how he 's supposed to uh, act and and Gary Carter was the prime example of what a man is like, you know how he 's supposed to live and I admired him for that and when I looked at him that 's what a man was like that 's what I wanted, but I just wasn 't capable of having that. At the point of my career, I was so young and and successful, and I was just being a baseball player. You
0: know, it's hard to believe it's going to be 19 years this October 27th since your last major league at bat against John Smoltz in the 1999 World Series. It's even more unimaginable that it's been 34 years since your first major league at bat against Mario Soto. Which of those two at bats were the most important to you, and why?
1: Well, the, the first one is probably the most important advantage because you have arrived. You have worked hard. The minor leagues are are very difficult to get through, and it's not a guarantee just because you're a number one pick or a top draft pick that you're going to make it. You could have injuries. You could not do well. And I was able to develop. Uh, I was always grateful for uh, the minor league organization, how they developed me. Uh, I was grateful for Frank Cashin because, I know he didn't want me to come to the big leagues right away. He he just believed that me and Doc were too young to be in New York at the age of 21 and 19. And um he just thought he didn't think of, he, he was thinking more about whether it hurt us as from a personal standpoint instead of a baseball standpoint. He knew we could play at that level, but it was New York City and the atmosphere will be get caught up in the atmosphere. And he was right about that. You know, we were young and and, and that happened, you know. I got caught up in the atmosphere, but that First of that is always the
0: most important than the last. You know, the fact that you started your career with the Mets, ended with the Yankees is very interesting. And I have to tell you, Daryl, as a lifelong Met fan, your words this week, especially with the way this Met team oh. Has been playing this year was just like an additional dagger to the heart. Um, for those that might not have heard Daryl's comments on uh, the Sid uh, Rosenberg show this week, um, you said, and we've discussed this here with many of the '86 Mets. And in fact, Wally Backman even said that he felt that this current regime is jealous of the success they had. But you said, the players on the '86 championship team, we don't e- we don't even deal with the Mets. It's not Fred Wilpon. It's the new thing. I'd never go back. I'd rather stay with the Yankees than ever go back to the Mets. What exactly did you mean by that? And since you've played 1,109 games as a Met, 231 as a Yankee, and most Met fans, even though you won three world championships with the Yankees, don't even acknowledge that part of your career. What would it take for you or this Met organization to get you to retract that and say, yes, I am a Met? Oh, no,
1: listen! I am a Met. They don't ever fans don't ever forget that. I I, I love the Mets fans. I will always be a Met. I'm a homegrown player. That that is nothing personal against anyone. Fans or the new regime that's there. It's nothing. nothing personal against none of them. You know, it's it's the personal things that happen. You know, to myself with, with ownership. Um, that I've had to go through over the years. And I've never said anything about it. And I'm not going to say anything because I, I, I do have character, regardless of what anybody wants to think and say. They have done some things that were not good. And I I don't want to expose them. You know, if they ever expose me, then I can expose them about it. But I won't expose them about that because I'm a different person. And I was just, you know, I was just kind of just letting my point come clear that as long as that, as long as that ownership is tied there, I, I don't have nothing to do with it. It, it has nothing to do with uh, the players. It has nothing to do with the fans. And I just need to make that clear. and People need to right. understand that I have my right. You know, I have my rights for what happened with a lot of things behind the scenes, and, and people don't know. You know, they play this goody goody two show role that they play in life, but I know, I know the true things that they did that they have done to me in their personal. And um, I'm just going to leave it at that.
2: So what, what was the big difference, Darrell, between the way George Steinbrenner treated you and the way the Wilpons did?
1: Well, he, he just treated you as you as a, a person, not a piece of meat. Uh, um, he didn't, you know, because when you treat people like that, well, you're done with us. Well, we don't really need you anymore. Uh, so you reap what you sow. I mean, he treated you like you were family. You know, with the Yankees organization, it's just like you know, your family your family to them they don't they don't turn it back on you they 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 welcome you back you know open arms and stuff like that and you know and I think that started because of what the boss was like you know with everybody you know every player that played around there was always welcome back and I just really admired him for that you know because he was a person that he looked at the hopeless and he became a father figure to the hopeless of of players and and I I will always be grateful for that you know not that I Not that he had to do that, but he went out of his way to do that, not only for me, but for other players, too. And When you see that, that's that's what real life is all about. It's not about what you can do for me and then you've done what you've done for me and what have you done for me lately. He wasn't that kind of uh, person.
0: Let's talk about this very important book now, one in which you dedicate to all those who never gave up on me in hopes that this book will help others never give up on their loved ones who suffer from this terrible brain disease. Who were those people, uh, the most important for you, that never gave up on you? And for those people that are out there that are struggling with you know loved ones that have addictions you know a lot of times it it, you know they try and they try and they try and then finally they 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 can't try anymore because no matter what their efforts have you know things have always turned out the other way how do you tell those people look still try
1: yeah well you still love them regardless because they're your loved ones no matter what and you don't you know people don't turn your back on because you because you have addiction see addiction is is, is so powerful and, and always have been and always will be and most people don't realize nobody signed up to be an alcoholic nobody signed up to be a drug addict some kind of trauma some kind of um, dysfunction something's happened some kind of brokenness is real lawlessness brings about brokenness people are broken inside so they try a, a drink or they try a drug and they get addicted um, everybody's not privileged everybody that does, doesn't have that right to um, be that way where they had everything and ha- don't have problems inside themselves and and some do millions these millions of people suffer from addiction daily, and the people that were in my life uh, you know with our team that wrote this book, which is incredible, um, Sean, who wrote the book and he, th- the doctors, they all played a big part, John Picciano, who is the Oglethort CEO and of, of Oglethort and strawberry uh, treatment centers, and me and him and Ron Doc, Ron Doc, who used to work for the Yankees, he was a uh, 16 years, seventeen years with the Yankees um drug counselor for the team to help young players. Uh, there's going to be a lot of players that drink and get addicted to alcohol and get addicted to drugs. It's just the way it is in sports. Uh, I don't know why, but it's always been. It's the same way in the Hollywood um, atmosphere. And, and there was my wife, who is my wife today, who's, who I'm blessed with. You know, She was the one that uh, led me back to faith and, and pulled, me out of, pulled me out of drug houses and You know, it's people that help people, and we always got to remember that we're we're all people, you know, and we should never look at someone and point our finger at them and say they're a loser. You know, what makes you a winner? Who made you God? You know, and we need to get over ourselves and remember that God restores us. You know, God restores people for, for the right reason. That's what happened to my wife. He restored her, and he used her to lead me back. he rescued me he redeemed me and he restored me and now i'm doing the same thing um about addiction that's across america with all these young people dying and odn and dying um it is epidemic um it is a disease it's a brain disease uh opiates and heroin are killing all our kids and people should never give up don't quit on nobody Uh, just allow somebody that knows what they're talking about that has a problem with addiction that can help them, and those are the answers that I'm trying to give to people. That's what this book is about. This book is about educating you what addiction is about. When you read about it, read this book, you understand it with the doctor's opinion what happens to people, and what happens to people's brain, and how they get addicted.
0: Yeah, the book is fascinating because it kind of uses your life as the clinical study and and goes through your feelings and how that impacts the brain and how the need for love, and that brings up an interesting point because over the the 10 years of doing this show, AJ AJ and I have had many athletes that have fallen from grace due to various addictions, whether it be gambling, alcoholism, drugs. And a lot of them have found peace and recovery through finding God. Whatever religion you are, whatever religion you believe in, God's love is unconditional in every one of the faith. So how does that relate to when you say you know, you're broken and you know, that your father you know, didn't give you that unconditional love how does, and you're an ordained minister as well, how does God's unconditional love play into the recovery process?
1: Well, it plays a major part in it when you start actually letting him heal you inside from your wounds. Um, because there's tremendous wounds inside of a person. And if you never get healed, see, we all, Mark, we all good, we all look good on the outside. You know, everybody looks good on the outside when they show up and say, oh, my you ha- wife... You
0: haven't met up. A.J.? No.
1: <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> AJ, <okay. laughs> Well, AJ, you too. We all look good on the outside. But it's, it's what we look like on the inside. And, well, that AJ's and we
0: have, got. Yeah, <laughs> and we
1: all, we all have some stuff to overcome, like you said. It, it might not be drugs and alcohol. It could be food. It could be gambling. It could be sex. It could be porn. It could be all these things that lure you in and suck you in and pull you in, and it captivates your mind. And it changes your mind. See, when, when you take a drug or a drink, the first thing it's going to do to your mind is going to alter you. And anything that alters your mind is not going to allow you to be normal. And that's what we deal with a lot. And uh, we have to understand the importance of, of what, what are we dealing with. If we never get educated and, and allow God to come in and speak into your life, whatever religion you're in, you're God, bring you peace with inside of yourself because your life matters. You're not a mistake. We've all have made mistakes. We've all had fallen short. None of us, none of us are better than next. Some, of them, some people may put themselves on a pedestal and think they're better, but they're, they're sinners too, and they fall short, every last one of them. And we always have to remember that God is the healer of all things, that he heals the heart of a person, and he changes your mindset. And then you enter, in that's why it plays a big part in addiction. I think what has happened is we have taken God out of the schools and allowed our kids in that generation, the millennial kids, don't even know about faith, and that's what's separating them so much. That because we're so they're so busy on internet, my uh, my space, his space, her space, whatever, Twitter, mm-hmm. Instagram, you know, all that has captivated them and has lost them of who they are.
2: Darrell, I have two questions for you for markets back in before we let you go. One is, and it segues nicely talking about faith. A couple of years ago, there was a story I read, quoted you admiring Tim Tebow largely because of his faith. So Tim Tebow has now gone from playing football to baseball. Not the quite a level question as before. What is your advice and your feeling about Tim Tebow? That Tim Tebow as he tries to make it as a baseball player?
1: I wish you know I wish you really nothing but the best. You know he's a he's a wonderful guy, wonderful guy, a character. He's a prime example of that you can live a different way, and you can't you can't separate yourself from you know, uh, the worldly things. And he's done that. He's done that throughout his college career and his professional career. And he's always been criticized about what he's not. But what people forget, fail to realize what he is, he is a man. He's not just a football player. He's not just a baseball player. You know, he's a man that, that grew up with some real character in, about himself and some integrity about himself. And that's why you I, I admire anyone that can do that that puts on a uniform because it's really hard to put on a uniform and not have an ego. And, and thanking you all that in a bag of chips. And a lot of times, most of us do. But, I, I, you know, he hasn't done that. I've seen him. And, you know, I just think he, you know, his faith is, is real. It always has been. He's, he, he's, he walks it. He just don't talk about it, but he lives it. And that's what it's really all about. That's the way Gary Carter was. Gary Carter was the same way. He walked it, he lived it, and he just didn't talk about it. But he was an example what faith is really like.
2: The other question I wanted to ask you know, some things you said earlier this week about Colin Kaepernick and the stand he took about not standing up for the national anthem and the reasons behind it and the the repercussions of the that way that's affected him. Now, you said some statements and got a little criticism of the F- Essence magazine people about it online. What's your feeling about Kaepernick and what he did and basically the state he is now with being out of a job?
1: Well, I mean, he has the right to do whatever he wants. And I understand, you know, I understand um, their right and... I just think professional sports is a window of time to play professional sports, and it's over. And when it's over, no one's really going to talk about you if you haven't if you haven't been successful. So you don't really want to get it into politics about it, and the political part of it, because uh, you have you have a window of time to play and, and enjoy yourself with with the gift that you have. You know, and I, like I said, I've, I'm not knocking him or any of them, but I understand. I just think what happens in the public perception, you know, they're going to punish you for it. I, I, just the way, that's just the way it is. You get punished for things sometimes that are unfair. Um, you know, he's probably a great guy. Some of the other guys are great guys, and they're making a stand. You know, I, I understand that. I know no racial part of uh, going through in my baseball career and what I had to deal with. But, you know, I realized that one thing, it doesn't matter what anyone else has to say, I have to look at me and determine who I am regardless of what you know what's going on and what are people saying about different people uh, and everybody has to look at themselves because at the end of my life i have to answer to god i don't have to answer the man i don't have to answer to news or, or opinions or thought and i realize that today and i stand for what i stand for is i believe and i believe who i am i believe i've been transformed in a different person and and love people and i really care about people i don't care if you're black white spanish i don't care if you're red blue I, if you're someone that's hurting. And struggling, I love you. I want to care for you because I remember my pain. And I'm no longer in that pain. So, you know, I have a lot of wonderful friends, and one of my friends is probably listening right now. And I'm Long Island. His name is Tiny. I just want to give him a shout out because I told him I was going to be on your air. And he said he's going to listen.
0: Nice. All right, Daryl. Aside from purchasing this book, what can those who are listening now um, that are dealing with family, a family member or a loved one that has an addiction, what can they do? How can they help them? And, and you know, what's the most important thing to to do for that loved one?
1: Well, first of all, families in, across America, you know, that pick up this book, you know, they're going to find out the education part of one that's been through addiction. And then you're going to find the insight of doctors. And the way Sean, Sh- the writer, wrote the book, you know, you, you it's going to weave you through, you know, what it was like for me and the pain I was in. And the doctors are going to weave you through the uh you know opinions and and thoughts of what happens to a person and why we don't turn away from how to learn to love them and how to deal with someone that's with an addiction problem we don't crucify them we love them we continue to love them and tell them we love them even if it's hard on 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 them and even if they've been through you've been through some hard things you can you can love them, but you don't need to tolerate them at times. And sometimes you have to let them go. Everybody had to let me go, and I had to hit the bottom. And when I, my wife uh, came into my life, I hit my bottom with her, and I came up, and we were restored together, and we, and we both do the same thing. We're both ministers, and we help people, and we care about people. We don't give up on anybody. We, we love them right where they're at and tell them that their life matters, especially these young kids today. We have to listen to them. Don't talk over them. We've learned that if you listen to them, all they want to do is talk and they want to tell you, you know, what they've been through. Young girls, 18, 19 years old, who's od two and three times, who've been raped and mal- uncles. See, people don't know the depth of what people go through. They just judge because they're using. And There's a reason why people are using. There's a reason why people are drinking alcohol and becomes alcohol and drug addicts because they're trying to drown themselves. They're trying to drown their feelings because they don't want to feel it.
0: Where can people get a hold of this great book?
1: They can go to Amazon.com. It's on there. Um, it's on there. Yeah, it's on there. And they can also go to our ministry page, because I will be signing copies of it from my ministry page, strawberryministries.org. You know.
0: we'll, we'll put a link to that as well. Daryl, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks for so many great moments on the diamond. And more importantly, thanks for the great work you're doing now to help people overcome addiction. We really appreciate it, the amount of time you spent with us tonight.
1: All right, I appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. No you got it.
0: You. The great Darryl right. Strawberry.